going to be in the book of Jude. So if you've been with us for the whole thread series, we are one away from the end. We're almost there. Um, one sermon from each book of the Bible, and then uh, next week we're going to start just a four-week series in Revelation, and at the end on New Year's Eve, we'll cap it all off, kind of telling the whole story of the Bible using just the Bible to kind of connect all the dots as we see the thread of Jesus through the whole story of God. Um, did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, and one of the things I just I realized this Thanksgiving is I'm really thankful for you. I'm really thankful to be one of the pastors here, and you guys are a joy and a delight. And so I'm thankful for you. All right, one of, a, one of you guys is thankful for me. That's, I, I can live with that. I can, I can live with that. No, I'm not, not seeking anything like that. I just, the last three years have been challenging, and I know a lot of pastors that wouldn't necessarily say that about their churches, uh, but I'm really thankful for you guys. So let's pray, and then we'll have a video that'll kind of give us an overview of Jude. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us now to open up your word and to let you speak. God, we love your word, all of it, even parts that are hard to understand. And so would you open our minds and our hearts up to the message of Jude? Would you warn us and sober us rightly that we might walk with you and contend for the faith? So Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a quick video. The book of Jude was written by Jude, the brother of Jesus, sometime between 60 and 80 AD. He writes to a church which had been struggling against false teachers that were living opposed to the teachings of Jesus and leading Christians astray in the process. Jude responds to these reports with an urgent message to defend the faith from corruption and selfish living. Jude reminds the church of God's righteous justice that had been delivered throughout history to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to rebellious angels, to the murderer Cain, and the sorcerer Balaam. In each case, these figures claimed authority independent from God and distanced themselves from His will. In return, God gave them over to their sinful desires, honoring their choice to live apart from Him. Jude says that these false teachers will meet the same fate if they continue to let their sinful urges drive their actions. The church must be different. Jude calls Christ followers to build each other up in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping themselves secure in what they know and have experienced in God's love. Jude encourages the church to show mercy to those wavering in sin while remaining cautious not to be caught up in sin themselves. God is gracious and does not allow his people to fall too far from himself. In this brief letter, Jude shows how destructive it is to live a life apart from God. The selfish life is a dangerous life that produces only bad fruit. But new life in Jesus means we have been forgiven, set free from our old ways and desires, to live righteously under the care and continued mercy of God. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? He did. Brothers and sisters who actually during his earthly ministry didn't follow him. 
Uh, we actually know their names, or at least the brothers. They're, they're written in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 55 and 56. When talking about Jesus, they ask, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, can you imagine growing up in a home with Jesus as your older brother? Talk about a shadow that you were living in, right? I mean, you could never blame things on him. Like, uh, he was spotless, right? And then he goes around and begins preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and demonstrating the power of God with all of these miracles. And yet, you grew up with him. You're not about to worship your older brother as God. And then he dies. And then he comes back to life. And that did something, and at least two of Jesus' brother, James and Jude, or Judas. We, we know that because they actually became leaders in the early church. James now was a lot more famous. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church, and, and he wrote a letter that, were, that a lot of people study. The, the book of James, or the letter of James, filled with tons of wisdom and practical advice on how to live out your faith in the day-to-day -day things of life. Judas, however, who's also named there, has a book or a letter attributed to him as well. And it's actually at the very end of our Bibles, right before the book of Revelation. And Jude's letter is honestly really weird. <laughs> it's out there. It's tucked right at the end of our Bibles, right before Revelation. And in light of its shortness and the content, we ignore it most of the time. Because if you're in the mood for something weird and kind of confusing, why not just turn one more page and get to the book of Revelation, right? And what makes it so odd is that he quotes not just from all of these stories from the Old Testament, but he actually quotes from other Jewish writings, ancient in, in their sources, that were not considered scripture. Two in particular, First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. And, and the, the, the letter of Jude is filled primarily with stories of warning and God's judgment. He says, you need to contend for the faith. And then he tells all of these stories about what faithfulness doesn't look like. What the, the false teachers of his day were, were walking in the same patterns that they had seen over and over and over again. In fact, Jude opens and says, this isn't the letter that I wanted to write to you, but this is the letter that I need to write to you. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago when we walked through Hebrews chapter 11? Kind of this Old Testament hall of saints. As we got our mind around the idea of what is faith or what does a faithful life look like, we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint, we see an example of godliness. We see an example of faith. We, we see an example of what we are to emulate and what we are to follow. If you guys could think of Jude as like the opposite of Hebrews 11, that's a good picture we see story after story, allusion after allusion to Old Testament stories of people who didn't do the right thing, of false teachers, of those who went their own way, of those who rebelled against God and experienced the judgment of God as a result. See, Jude's structure is actually pretty straightforward. I'm going to teach you what's something called a, a chiasm. It's, it's actually a, a fairly common like literary device in, in Hebrew literature. It basically means that the, the beginning and the end are the same, and then the second thing and second to the end are the same, and then in the middle you kind of get to the point where you get all of these examples. And so what we see in, uh, in the, the letter of Jude is a, is a greeting and an encouragement where he encourages them of the assurance 
that they are called and loved by God and kept by Jesus. And then he gives them in verses 3 and 4 a command that they are to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. And then in the middle, verses 5 to 19, is story after story, uh, word picture after word picture of bad examples that kind of embody what the false teachers are about. And then he closes with kind of a prescription in verses 20 to 23 of how, are, how they're to contend for the faith, what they are to do. And then he closes the same way he began with a sense of assurance that God will keep you. God will do it. God will preserve you and hold you fast. So that's the structure. Rather than read through it and just see a bunch of confused looks, I'm just going to read through it and stop and read through it and stop and explain it along the way. Sound good? So turn in your Bibles to Jude, Uh, start at the end, just flip one book back, it's one page long, it'll also be up here on the screen. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so he starts the way that they would typically start letters by naming the author, Jude, brother of James and servant of Jesus. Now, if you were Jesus's brother, maybe you would leverage that a little bit, brother of Jesus and James, but he simply calls himself a servant of Jesus and brother of James so that we can rightly identify them. And then he tells, hey, this is who I'm writing to, those who are called, meaning those who are chosen and invited, called by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, beloved in God the Father, Those who are not only called and chosen, but they are loved by God the Father. God loves you. And then finally, kept for Jesus Christ. You see kind of a Trinitarian thing going on here. Those who are held securely, protected and safe by the Holy Spirit, and they're kept for Jesus. You're going to be his bride. It's really interesting that he begins here in light of the harsh warning that is to come. He assures them and he warns them. Now, in the Bible, these are not competing or incompatible ideas, but rather ones that complement each other. That he assures them of their salvation in Jesus, while at the same time warning them not to fall away, warning them not to fall into the, to the trap of these false teachers and in their way of life. He concludes his greeting by saying, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May you have your fill of these things. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude writes, this isn't the letter that I wanted to write to you. In fact, I was going to write to you of the glories of salvation and what God has done, but this is the letter that I need to write to you because I need to warn you. Uh, This is the letter I feel compelled to write. Now, I I can resonate with this as a preacher. There are sometimes, this is a sermon that I wanted to give and this is the sermon that I need to give. Or maybe as a parent, like most discipline conversations that you have with your kid usually happen in the course of, this is not how I saw the day going. This is not what I had pictured for us as a family. I had a great family time laid out. We had all of these fun things and these boxes to check off, and you're getting in the way of it. And yet, good parenting is to stop and say, hey, buddy, we need to talk about this. 
We need to talk about your prayer. This is not the conversation that I thought that I would have with you, but this is the conversation that we need to have right now. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? It's never convenient, is it? It never happens when you're ready for it or you want it to happen. It often happens in the midst of your plan for something else. You know, a lot of interpersonal conflict is that way, isn't it? If you're anything like me, I actually don't like interpersonal conflict. I hate it. I like things to be good, chill. I don't want to walk into a tense room. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm Minnesotan like that. But here's what I've come to find out as a, as a pastor, as a leader, as a friend, the conversations that I often don't want to have are exactly the conversations that I need to have so that true reconciliation can happen. See, when we handle conflict in a healthy and a godly way, it actually restores our relationships as opposed to just bringing it back to a cool indifference and a civility that is just kind of a show for how we really feel. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times we struggle with managing conflict in a healthy way. And about a week ago, we actually had a seminar where, that was devoted to that. And I know a lot of you weren't able to make it because of deer hunting and all those things. But I want to let you know that that actually is available online for free. You can just go to rockhillcc.org slash pursuing peace together and learn a lot of really important skills that you probably needed at your family gathering on Thursday. I didn't want to write you this letter, but this is the letter that I need to write. And here's what I need you to do, says Jude. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend there means to, to fight for. It's an aggressive word. It's, it's where we get the word agonize from. So fight for the faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now why do you need to contend for it? Because there are false teachers that have risen up in the church that are actually distorting the gospel. How are they doing that? They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What exactly was their false teaching? One that's alive and well today. The kind of teaching that springboards beyond grace and says, once you've embraced Jesus, it doesn't really matter how you live. You don't have to battle against sin. You can live however you want, resting safe in the grace of God that he'll forgive you anyway. I say that that's alive and well because a lot of people still believe this. We wrongly assume that grace gives us license to do whatever we want and to live for ourselves, to keep on sinning, assuming that God will just forgive us. These false teachers had risen up and they were basically distorting grace by saying, do whatever you want. It was not the, the gospel of God's victory over sin, but rather the gospel of God's tolerance of sin so that you can go back to doing what you really want anyway. And it distorts the grace of God. What's interesting here is not what the false teaching is. I mean, that's popped up in other New Testament letters all over the place. But how Jude chooses to address this particular false teaching. He could have done like what the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and craft a carefully worded argument, kind of dismantling that understanding and that idea of grace and showing how that is incompatible with the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And if you're looking for like an actual answer to why that's false teaching, I would actually commend to you, go study Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's a far more compelling argument. See, what Jude does is he basically just tells story after story after story about the judgment that comes when you actually live that way. The judgment that comes when you teach and you model and you live the way that these false teachers are living. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Kyle, I didn't come to church this morning for a message about judgment and warning. I get it. 
I didn't necessarily wake up thinking, oh, I'm going to get them. (laughs) But maybe that's exactly what we need to hear, that we might be rightly and soberly warned so that we would live under the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who left their promise. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy, dark, surrounding cities, which likewise indulged. <clears throat> Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, so he throws out three rapid-fire stories from the Old Testament. The the people of the Exodus, the rebellious angels that we find in Genesis chapter 6, and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that's detailed for us in Genesis chapter 19. Each story teaches us something about the destination and what the false teachers are doing. He begins in verse 5 with the Exodus. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, a couple things are interesting here. The first, it's interesting that Jude gives credit to the, for the Exodus to whom? Jesus. It was Yahweh, it was God who led the people out of Egypt, wasn't it? And yet here now Jude, speaking of his older brother, said it was Jesus who did it. This is nothing less than a claim that Jesus is in fact divine and that what God was doing in the Old Testament when he rescued his people out of Egypt was actually Jesus working and doing the actual work. So don't give me this mumbo-jumbo that the New Testament doesn't treat Jesus as God or just a nice teacher. Even his brother worshipped him as God crazy. Not only that, his point in referencing the story is to remind them that not all of the people that left Egypt in God's miraculous deliverance at the Exodus made it to the promised land. In fact, very few actually did. There were many who rebelled and they didn't believe, and because of that, they were destroyed and they experienced God's judgment in the wilderness. This is a warning for us to heed that their unfaithfulness should not be modeled. That even though they experienced the grace of God, even though they saw the power of God in profound ways, they didn't keep believing. They didn't keep trusting. They didn't walk with God, and so they experienced his judgment. Second, we have a story of rebellious angels, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day or the great day. I told you it gets weird. This is actually an interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 from the Jewish writing of 1st Enoch, who he's going to quote in length later on. The, The interpretation of Genesis 6 is that the sons of God that are mentioned there that rebelled against God are actually angels who came to the earth and interbred with humans and thus experienced the judgment of God because they rejected God's order of things and they sought to do things themselves. It's weird. It's a bit out there. It's Jude, okay? But what Jude is highlighting is is the severity of God's judgment toward these angels who abandoned God's designs and purposes and sought to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. 
which is what the false teachers are promoting, that we can live however we want. We, are, we don't need to be under God's authority. Finally, the third story is he refers to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I have yet to see Genesis 19 find its way into a children's Bible. If you want a dark, grisly story of the depravity of sin and how far we can go in our rebellion against God, just read Genesis 19. There is no hero in the story. It mentions things that, looking at the ages of some here, I actually prefer not to mention, but it's unbelievably dark so that when God's judgment falls in fire, you're like, okay, they deserve that one. I get it, that was pretty bad. But here you have human beings abandoning God's designs and plans and purposes and being subject to the punishment and judgment of God. Just like God had done in the wilderness to the people who came out of Egypt but didn't trust him, or just like the angels who rebelled against God's good design. And so Jude now pulls these three stories together and compares the result of these things to the false teachers in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So these teachers look to themselves, they look inward, they reject the authority of God, they rely instead on their own dreams and desires instead of God's revealed truth, and they lead others in that direction. So too, we are tempted to reject God's good design and calling on our life. So much of our world tells us to look inward toward our twisted and our skewed desires to find our authentic self, to not rely on God and what he says about us or the world but make sense of it ourselves, be true to ourselves, rely on our dreams and our feelings and our misplaced desires. But the end of that is the judgment of God. Now, if you look at these three stories and think, well, that's odd. We're actually just getting started. Just get to the, wait, wait till we get to the ones that aren't even in the Bible, the Old Testament. In, in verse 9, Jude pulls a story out of an ancient Jewish work called the Testament of Moses. Let me read it for you. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. You're welcome. So the Testament of Moses tells this story about essentially Michael the archangel and Satan contending over the body of Moses, this back and forth kind of thing. And um, here Jude uses that as something that they would have been familiar with to illustrate a point about how the false teachers do what even Satan did, or e what even Michael the archangel didn't claim to have authority to do. Now, what's interesting about this is that there were three different kinds of Jewish literature in the, in, in the world of Jesus. There was the Old Testament scriptures, which were received and seen as authoritative, the very words of God that were arranged in the Hebrew canon, the same Old Testament that we have, that the Jewish people even to this day have. Then there were, there were, there were the apocryphal writings, which were essentially things that had good history in them. They told the story, but they weren't considered authoritative in the same way. 
if you grew up Catholic or if you have a friend who's Catholic, they actually have the apocryphal books in the middle of the Bible, right? In between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were added in about 1600 as scripture by the Catholic Church, but, but for most of history, we've seen them as like good history, but not having the same type of authority that the Old Testament had. In fact, I would encourage you to read the apocryphal. Uh, not as scripture, but it, in many ways it connects the dots between the world of the Old Testament and the world in which Jesus walked. It tells the story of God's people during that time period. And then there's a third type of literature that existed in ancient Jewish time. It was called the pseudepigrapha, or basically authors who wrote, who wrote under a pseudonym or a different name that wasn't their own. This would be things like First Enoch or the Testament of Moses, where they would find a, a, a godly character from, from Jewish history and they would attribute it to them as their work or their writing or their musings or their thoughts about certain things. Now, the problem with Moses is that he already gave us a testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? And yet, here we have Jude writing New Testament scripture quoting from the testament of Moses about this particular apocryphal thing. Now, why in the world would he refer to that and not just refer to stories in the Bible? Honestly, that's a really good question for me. It doesn't make a lot of sense that he would pull this other than the people that he was writing to would have been familiar with this, and he's using it to illustrate a particular point. Um, some of the pseudepigraphal writings are really out there. Others like these two are more like mainstream. But, but he quotes this here uh, because he thinks it will illustrate a point that he's trying to make in contrasting Michael the archangel and his approach to the false teachers and their approach. Now, maybe, maybe think of it this way. Maybe think of it as a modern person now quoting in a sermon or a writing the Pilgrim's Progress, or maybe one of C.S. Lewis's works. None of us would claim that these would be works of scripture, but they're well-known within the Christian community and more or less considered helpful. Uh, these, these writings might have been similar to what these types of writings were in the Jewish community. Any way you look at it, though, the point is pretty clear. Michael the archangel in the story doesn't presume to cast or make a judgment himself, but rather entrusts the judgment of these big things to God. The false teachers in Jude's day, in contrast to this attitude, make all kinds of judgments and definitive statements that go beyond what God has said. That's his point in verse 10. But these people, unlike Michael, who entrusted himself to the Lord and entrusted judgment to the Lord, blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understood, understand instinctively. Notice that these false teachers are kind of like circling the drain and spiraling worse and worse and worse. They're devolving what he, he says into almost a subhuman existence, relying on urges and instincts like animals do, not in control of them like human beings created in God's image. Now these stories and these illusions lead up to verse 11, which is the middle of this particular chiasm or the structure the middle of the story where the definitive word of God's judgment is proclaimed. He says, woe to them. Woe to them. Much the same way that Jesus in Matthew 23 said, woe to the religious teachers and the Pharisees. And then he gives the reasoning and he rips out three more stories. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Whew. That's a lot of stories. 
that if we don't know our Bible, we're like, what in the world are you talking about? If, but if we do know our Bible, we can just recap those stories and pull them together. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain was the brother whose offering wasn't received by the Lord in Genesis 4 and 5. And then in a fit of jealousy and rage, he murders his brother Abel, whose offering was accepted before the Lord. And then after that begins a city in rebellion against God. Balaam, we read his story in Numbers 22 and 23 and 24. He was paid by a Moabite king by the name of Balak as the people of God are wandering toward the promised land. Balak gets scared of the Israeli people, the Hebrew people, and so he pays Balaam, a prophet, to curse them. But every time Balaam opens his mouth, he can't proclaim a curse on them, but rather proclaims a blessing on them. What we see in Balaam is someone who's willing to sell out anything for the sake of financial gain. And then Korah, he was the one who led a rebellion against God's people because he was jealous of Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 16. And as his rebellion was seen for what it was, the ground opened up and swallowed him and his family and his fellow rebels up, showing that God doesn't trifle with authority and that he was upholding Moses and Aaron. Here are these three stories that you have to know your Bible to understand, but all three of these stories have something in common. All three of these people, Cain, Balaam, Korah were driven by something other than a love of God. Cain was driven by jealousy and rage. Balaam by money. Korah by jealousy and the desire to be more significant than Moses and Aaron. This is a word against the false teachers of Jude's day who are driven by money and jealousy, a desire to be in charge, a desire to do whatever it is that they want with very little thought of God and how he feels. He goes on to give illustration after illustration about what these false teachers are like in verses 12 and 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast without you or feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We don't really talk like this, do we? And yet these metaphors capture something very vivid about their rebellion and their worthlessness. They are as dangerous to you, he says, as a hidden reef is to a ship that's going through a bay. It could shipwreck you instantly. They are like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34 who feed themselves but do not look after the sheep. They are like the waterless clouds of Elijah's day that look pretty and promising but are of no value to you because they don't actually bring rain. They are like fruitless trees in autumn that might look pretty but they're twice dead and uprooted. They're worthless and don't provide anything good for you. They're like waves of the sea that cast up the foam of their own shame. I mean, that's some pretty poetic language, isn't it? Like wandering stars whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Here he's most likely referring to fallen angels that are awaiting their destruction and their judgment. All right. One more thing to close things up. One more story. This one quoted from First Enoch in verse 14 and 17. Who's still with me? We're doing a deep dive. It's a good thing we call this thread. We're like connecting all the dots, right? Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It almost feels like he's devolving into like a Monty Python level of insulting, right? And name-calling. And yet he's actually quoting from First Enoch. He, he can't even get out the words to describe just how bad and destructive these false teachers are, leading people away in ungodliness. In many ways, he's contending for the truth to undermine these false teachers. He says, it's like what Enoch said about the rebels of his day. That's what the, that's what the false teachers are today. And then in verse 17, 18, and 19, he appeals to the apostles, probably Peter and John and Paul, and says this, this was predicted that this would happen. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So there you have it. There's the middle. Story after story, illusion after illusion of what false teachers are like, None of them are good, and all of them brought the judgment of God on themselves. Now, it's easy for us to step back and be like, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them. But which of us hasn't fallen prey to the love of money? Or which of us is without sexual sin of any kind? Which of us is immune from thinking from time to time that we know better than God? looking internally to find ourselves or to be authentic instead of obeying God and what he says about us? Which of us have never felt jealousy or envy for the recognition of others at the expense of ourselves? <coughs> Excuse me. If your response to reading these warnings is, man, those people are really bad, you're doing it wrong. You're reading it wrong. Yes, they're bad, but so are we. And so we must contend for the faith once of all delivered, which leads us then to this conclusion. You must contend for your own faith if you are to contend for the faith. Or to say it in a more uh, communal way, we must contend for our own faith if we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered. Unless we think that we are immune, we look at story after story of people in the Old Testament and beyond who had it all but rebelled, who knew what God desired of them but didn't do it, who sought their own well-being at the expense of others. So how do we do it differently than them? How do we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Well, verses 20 to 23 tell us. They give us a how-to, so to speak, of how to contend for the faith. It's practical advice. It says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's actually six imperatives, six things to do here, and I'll just highlight them briefly. The first, build yourselves up in the most holy faith or in your most holy faith. This takes work to grow in our faith, training, study. See, the faith that we have, we aren't to remain idle in, but to continually grow in. 
Like building muscles, we must train ourselves for godliness. We must allow our minds to be shaped by the truth and the beauty of God's word and his commandments rather than simply our own thoughts and desires. So we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Second, we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. Not just to pray, but pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we have a new power at work within us as New Testament saints that the Old Testament saints didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit who is a total game changer who changes our hearts and our desires so that we can actually obey the commandments that God gives us. He has given us not just a new command to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, but he has given us the, command, or the power to actually do it. And he's written it on our hearts. And so we're to seek the Holy Spirit in prayer. We're to seek his leading and guiding and prompting and pray in his power. Third, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, which sounds great, but how in the world do you do that? How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, you remember that he loves you, that you are beloved. You remind yourself of that regularly. You rehearse who you are. You meditate on what is true and what God has said about you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you embrace the truth about what God says about you and are defined by that rather than how you feel. And so you keep yourself in the love of God by reminding yourself that you are loved by God, that you are treasured by him. Fourth, you wait for the mercy of Jesus. This is an allusion to Jesus' second coming, saying that this current state of affairs won't be forever. The mercy of Jesus, not getting what we deserve, leads us to eternal life. Life one day will not be tainted and stained by sin like it is today. And so we think about that and we wait with anticipation for that. Fifth, we have mercy on those who doubt by snatching them out of the fire. <clears throat> what a vivid picture that is, to snatch someone out of the fire. But our posture toward those who struggle with doubt is not one of condemnation. It's not one of haughty superiority. Rather, we are to have mercy on those who struggle with doubt. And we are to seek to snatch them out of the fire. How do we do that? By, by speaking to their doubts, by encouraging them, by exhorting them, by, by bringing them in. We share with them. We warn them. We encourage them. And ourselves, we address our doubts. And in doing so, we snatch them out of the fire by helping them avoid the judgment of God. Finally, we do this while hating and fearing sin. He says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What does it mean to show mercy with fear? It means that in showing mercy to sinners and those who doubt, we have a healthy fear of sin ourselves. We realize that we are not immune from its power or its snares. And we are diligent to resist its allure ourselves, even as we're helping and showing mercy to those caught in it. See, among mature Christians, there is a healthy fear of sin. There's a sense, a respect, a humility that realizes I could so easily fall down that rabbit hole again. And so it produces a profound humility in us and a right fear of sin. Not a paralyzing fear, we've been given power over it, but a healthy fear that respects it and realizes that I am not immune to its allure and to its snare. Just as Jude began his letter 
with a greeting of encouragement and assurance and comfort, he ends his letter the same way. Yes, we must be on guard. Yes, we must contend for our own faith as we contend for the faith. But in the end, it is God who keeps us. It is he who holds us fast. And so he prays an amazing prayer of assurance at the end. Let me read it to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of, the, of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He, he closes with gospel hope. God will do it. He will keep us from stumbling. Be warned by Jude, but also be encouraged that God began a good work in you and he will finish his work in you. He will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So contend for the faith. Let's pray. God, thank you that we have example after example of those who run the race of faith, who fight the fight of faith. I think of the Apostle Paul at the end in 2 Timothy chapter 4 who said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and not just me, but all those who loved Jesus' appearing. God, would you help us to contend for our faith today and to contend for the faith, not putting up with false teaching, but bringing all of our life under the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our King. Jesus, be glorified in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.